Welcome to Powerhouse Politics. I'm ABC News White House correspondent Jonathan Carl. And I'm ABC News political director Rick Klein. Uh, we're coming to you on Thursday, five days out. Latest ABC Washington Post tracking poll shows us with a two-point race now. Uh, Hillary Clinton up to that, as you know, Rick, is what we call in this business a statistical tie, a tie <laughs> race. Within the margin of error. But it's confirmed by the New York Times-CBS poll out with a three-point edge for Hillary Clinton. It would seem to me, John, that now that we have a full round of polling after last Friday's revelation, that the the email story clearly impacted the race, but it didn't didn't fundamentally alter it. It didn't blow it up. We were worried about or concerned about the possibility on both sides of a bombshell, right? This could be the big thing that, that changes the course of the race. I don't see that here. Uh, but there's an interesting thing going on in the battleground states, John, as you've been if you've been documenting uh, using your magic board. Absolutely. And, and you see it uh, in, in the polling. You still see a significant, you know, you see a Hillary Clinton advantage uh, in in the states that she really needs to win. But it's a very narrow advantage. Uh, the CNN poll caught our attention yesterday. Uh, Pennsylvania, just four point lead for Hillary Clinton. That is within the margin of error. Um, you know, you can basically see looking at at all of these states, Wisconsin, Michigan, even Colorado uh, and, and Virginia, you can see a Hillary Clinton advantage as she has had all along, but it is a narrower advantage. And we're at the point, Rick, as we go into this final stretch where I think you could say that a, you know, Hillary Clinton is the clear favorite. A Donald Trump victory would be an upset but it would not be an unthinkable upset. I think at the same time that you see this clear, though narrow edge in the national polls, you see enough volatility in the state polls to give Donald Trump more paths to victory to 270 than he had a week ago. And that's remarkable. Suddenly, we're talking about Michigan. Suddenly, we're talking about Wisconsin. We're talking about polls that see Pennsylvania in reach. We've seen significant tightening in North Carolina and Florida, both of which look like they were starting to drift toward the Democrats. We see a shocker poll from CNN in Nevada that had a lead for uh, for Donald Trump over Hillary Clinton. So the the idea of that blue firewall holding critical to Clinton's election chances is more in question than it was just a couple of days ago. And you look at where the campaigns are devoting resources, time and energy. Friday, we're going to see Joe Biden out in uh, the state of Wisconsin. By the way, they've dispatched uh, Bernie Sanders uh, to Wisconsin as well. Chelsea Clinton has made two stops in Wisconsin. Uh, you know, that that that's... That's an interesting development. That's a state they hadn't paid much attention to at all. Uh, Hillary Clinton herself will be in Michigan. Melania Trump on the other side in the state of Pennsylvania. Uh, My friend uh, Ron Brownstein has a very interesting uh, take in The Atlantic on what what he identifies as a decision, a a, a decision that was made by the Clinton team that was little remarked, little noticed, uh, but, you know, some early on in this campaign to focus on the states that she wanted to win, the battleground states, the Floridas, the Ohios, the North Carolinas, but not to focus on the states that she needed to win. Until now, until just the last few days, we've seen virtually no activity on the states that you would expect her to win, but are, but, but could guarantee her the presidency, the, the, the Pennsylvanias, Wisconsin's, Michigan's uh, decision early on to, to, to pull out of uh, pull out of Colorado. They decided to focus on the states where there was a real battle, not to fortify her defenses. And, John, that's fascinating. It raises two questions to my mind. One is one of overconfidence. Did the team believe that you have these states that are historically blue, um, therefore we can pencil them in our column before we start? These are the states that, you know, most of them going back to 1988, 
1984, you can say, well, they're, they're, they're democratic states. We just don't have to put a lot of resources into them. We can worry about winning the, some of the Obama states and the, the, that he flipped for, for 2008 and 2012 and then and lock this thing away. The second thing that relates to it is their estimation of what the, what the, the Trump appeal was and has been. If you talk to the Trump campaign, they have always talked about the upper Midwest, Wisconsin, Michigan, even Minnesota, uh, clearly Ohio as, and Pennsylvania, as critical Iowa. to their chances. Iowa as well. Th- those were, those were the, the backbone of a potential Trump win. They, they've always felt like they have such a large number of white, non-college educated voters uh, that would come out and, and vote for a candidate that's finally speaking their language and speaking to them. And they... State- They've, states you could argue that have been suffering because of a free trade. Uh, state, states where um, manufacturing is way down. Uh, uh, you know, kind of, you know, Trump, uh, Trump Democrats, I suppose. That's right. But did, did you did they factor that in? Did they see that coming? And uh, look, I think we're still in a scenario. We do this gut check every day as to where you think the, the race stands. I still think we're talking about a Clinton win. We're just talking not about the sweeping win that she was that she was discussing with some confidence just a few days ago. And if if there is a shock. Uh, and again, as I said, I, this wouldn't be a totally, you know, this wouldn't be the black swan event that we would have thought, uh, you know, uh, some time ago. If there is a if there is a Trump victory, you may look back on this decision, as as Ron Brownstein has identified it, uh, this this overconfidence in her hold on these traditionally Democratic states as, you know, a, a, a decisive mistake. Now, right. I, again, I, like you, I think that we're, we are headed towards a Clinton victory. Uh, she clearly still has the advantage. But, you know, these are states, you know, Clinton got burned and burned badly during the Democratic primaries in Michigan, um, where, you know, Bernie Sanders, who was down in all of the polls, uh, who, who was given a 1% chance of winning by 538, uh, ended up winning and winning decisively. You know, there's clearly something at root in these you know, industrial uh, uh, Midwest uh, states that uh, where, where you have, you know, unease. I think that's right. And, you know, John, there's another thing I want to focus on, which is the surrogate game, because there are two really interesting speeches going on today on Thursday. The, anytime you put a surrogate out there, it's predicated on the assumption that this person can relate to voters in a way maybe that the principal can't. So let's start with Melania Trump. She hasn't given a speech since the convention. Um, we presume that this speech will be her own words, uh, and if they are her own words and she delivers to this Pennsylvania audience, how does she uh, interact and relate to voters, particularly the female voters that have been so hard for Trump? And then Tim Kaine, not quite a surrogate, I suppose, but down the ballot, he, he, down the ticket, he is giving a speech entirely in, in Espanol. In Spanish, oh, in, he's going to be in Arizona giving a speech entirely in Spanish. The subtext of I get you and I understand you in a year where Latino voters are so critical and could replace many of the African-American voters out of that Obama coalition. I think that's a big deal. But w- which is which is bigger to your mind today? You know, I, I think that, that just the fact we haven't seen Melania, she's been the most uh, invisible, uh, you know, spouse of a, of a major party nominee that we that we that we've ever had. I mean, she's she has not been out of the campaign trail at all. We haven't seen her since her besides silently you know by by her husband's side on occasion but even that's been been few and far between uh since her speech at the democratic at the republican convention uh in cleveland so i think um you know i think that's that's the big story today is how how that plays but i agree with you that it's uh it's certainly significant to see tim kane out there speaking spanish i can argue that the Kane speech in Spanish is actually more significant yeah. for the outcome of the election. Forget the, the, the daily news cycle. I, one of the things that I've always re- regretted about
about the 2012 campaign is not understanding the power of Spanish media and Spanish language media. And the, 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 the comments that Mitt Romney made about self-deportation were played over and over again in the Spanish language newspapers and really destroyed his chances among Latino voters and may have cost him the presidency. I did not understand that at the time. And I think it's just an important thing to focus on in, in the stretch of this race. And if you look at the demographics of this race, there's concern on the part of Democrats that African-American enthusiasm is down. African-American turnout, early vote turnout is down. There's concerns about millennials, uh, young voters uh, turning out in, in significantly lower numbers than uh, they turned out for, for Obama. But the one part of the Obama coalition that may be more energized this time and certainly is larger numerically are Hispanic voters. That's right. And they don't have to worry about the, 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 the turnout numbers there. And they're hoping that, it, again, it replaces – some of the voters out of the old Obama coalition makes a new Clinton coalition motivated in part by a dislike for Donald Trump uh, and concerns about his policies. Um, and, but those are the sort of things that could have long-term reordering uh, as well. And there'll be a future Brownstein column on topics like this about the, the, the so-called sleeping giant of the Latino vote. And if they wake up in this election, deliver a bunch of states, what that means. Now, we, we're going to be joined in just a, just a minute here uh, by our friend Rich Lowry at National Review uh, one of those who um, I think is truly admired uh, by, by by folks on the right is a thoughtful uh, conservative. Um, somebody. I think who, Donald Trump likes him too, right? Yeah, I think Donald Trump likes okay, him a good. lot. I mean, I I, I was just looking through because I wanted to, I wanted to kind of you know where do you go when you try to refresh your memory of what Donald Trump thinks about somebody? You go through his Twitter feed, <laughs> um, and uh, I mean you know, a little incompetent. Rich Lowry lost it on Fox News. He should not be allowed on TV, and the FCC should fine him. Uh, apparently, he didn't like his uh, his language. So we're, we're we're gonna we're gonna put in a a little delay button, right? Is that right, David Ryan, our producer here? I, I, can, can we? Because I want to make sure that Lowry isn't violating any. Is the FCC? Do, do those regulations affect our podcast? Podcasting. <laughs> You don't I, think so? Okay. I don't know. I, we'll, we'll, we'll test it if, if, uh, if Lowry will let us. Better watch out. My George Carlin <laughs> impression's coming soon. So we're kind of looking forward to November 8th or November 9th, I guess. Um, but I, I wanted to get your, your sense on you, – you, you wrote a, a column as, as, as the kind of Trump the, – the, the first sense that Trump could actually plausibly win this thing uh, 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 earlier this fall. Where are you now on that? I think for the first time, I'm not sure who I think is going to win, because uh, I'd o always said, you know, he has a chance, and people are, are kind of not psychologically taking enough account of that chance, which I had a lot of experience with during the primaries. You know, I'd go on uh, TV or radio during the primaries at various junctures and say, uh, you know, he has a 70% chance of winning the nomination, but internally in my head, I was like, there's a 30% chance of stopping him. We got him right where we want him. You know, there's no way. There's no way. And I think a lot of people are doing that a little bit now, where they, they, a lot of these states are now kind of on the edge, but everyone just assumes they'll fall Hillary's way. And that very well may happen, but it might not. And if it doesn't, you know, one reason people have trouble getting their heads around this, this would be the, the most amazing comeback in political history, um, and, and the guy who would have done it is the most unlikely candidate in American history, I mean, with, with, with the least, the most, with the least organized campaign ever, right? Ever in electoral politics. Yeah, uh, you know, and it, it, it's just it's just mind blowing. But but if you if if you look at uh, you know, National Review was was one of the was on the forefront of trying to stop Trump during the primaries. That obviously didn't work out. Where where are the never Trumpers 
going? Who's played this most effectively? You've seen it play out in the Senate races where, you know, some have kind of just clung to Trump. You know, the the, the, the Richard Burrs of the world. Uh, you know, Marco Rubio says he still doesn't think the guy should have access to the nuclear codes, but he's better than than Hillary Clinton. And then you've then you've had those that have gone the full on, you know, Heisman to, to Trump. Who's played it right? Well, the one I think who's been most courageous, which isn't isn't exactly answering your question, is Pat Toomey, who kind of all along I just said, look, I've, I'm I, I haven't endorsed him, um, I, I'm not there yet, and it's just sort of stuck. And I think a lot of these folks have have gotten in trouble and kind of disgraced themselves because just haven't staked out one position and just stuck with it. And I think it's you know there there are a whole range of positions that I would I have respect for. I you know I don't I don't. Uh, Poor contempt on anyone who realizes all of Trump's failings and just says, you know, look, this is a 51-49 question, and I'm with Trump. I, I respect that entirely, but it's just a little hard to respect the, the people who, you know, didn't endorse, then endorsed, then unendorsed, then reendorsed, you know, and and kind of if, if you're if that's where your state of mind is, just do what Mitch McConnell has done at least most of the time. He he came out yesterday pretty strongly for Trump, but just don't say anything. Just shut up. So uh, if that doesn't happen. <laughs> <laughs> the, the shut up factor. Where do you see the Trump impact falling down ballot? Do you think he he's going to cost Republicans the Senate? Can you blame that on him based on what you've seen? Do you think you hold on to the Senate? Do you hold on to the Senate despite him or because of him? Well, if he if it's a if he loses by two or three points, the chances of holding the Senate or or just losing in a fifty fifty tie, I think are pretty good. And and you know, the New Hampshire poll we had. Uh, yesterday or this morning, it all runs together, that had Trump up one, had Ayotte up six, which sort of accords w- with where she was before in terms of, of where she was running in relation to Trump. Because when Trump was, was you know, behind by 12 in New Hampshire, she was a little bit behind Hassan because uh, you just can't, there's only so much any Senate candidate can run ahead of Trump. So right. if he's really competitive now and it's really tight, a lot of these guys are going to look much better. So that, that, that raises an interesting point to me, Rich, that I want your take on. Because let's say Trump carries New Hampshire. It would be a surprise, uh, but there's polling to suggest that's a possibility. And uh, I think we can agree Kelly Ahot's likely to outperform Donald Trump uh, in her home state of New Hampshire. When Donald Trump goes around and talks about the love of this campaign, and the he tries to emphasize the inclusive nature of it, and there is no doubt that There's there so are people. There's so much love in this campaign. <laughs> <laughs> but okay, so th- that's not a word you'd associate with Donald Trump's campaign. But he has brought people into the process. He's brought Republicans on board. He's brought Democrats, maybe Reagan Democrats before that, as John says, maybe Trump Democrats going forward. Is there an argument that Trump has actually maybe he's stumbled into it and done it in an awkward way? But has he charted the future? Uh, for the Republican Party, that, that even if it's not really tied to the policies of the Republican Party of the past? Well, I would say a, a couple things. One, you just have to give him credit for uh, uh, the the energy he has stoked out there. It's been quite extraordinary. And I, I think it's been a little exaggerated, but there's no doubt that he has brought some new people into the party. All that is to the good, you know, and I, I welcome every single one of those people. But it's come at the cost of repelling others. You know, unnecessarily. And if Trump loses, this will be one of the tragedies of his campaign. If he had just run kind of this working class oriented uh, populism, anti-establishment, working class economics without the radioactive racial and uh, uh, the racial stuff and the the attacks on women, 
he really could have won this thing, and it could have uh, could have um, expanded the coalition. At the moment, it looks as though he's he's changing the coalition and bringing in some new people. But the cost of repelling, um, you know, college-educated women and Latinos and all the rest of it. So, um, and and a lot depends. We'll know more Wednesday just about how the debate within the party over Trump will go forward because we really know, want to know what happens. And obviously, if he's the next president of the United States, he has the whip hand uh, in the Republican Party. And by the way, bringing in people who uh, have have an agenda or who are attracted to him uh, for reasons that are entirely at, at odds with what Paul Ryan stands for. I mean, this is a you know, become a uh, an anti-free trade, anti-immigration, anti-entitlement reform uh, a movement. What what happens to Paul Ryan? I mean, where, do, do you think there's going to be a serious challenge to him after the election? I do. I, I think if, if Trump loses, especially if he loses narrowly, Ryan's going to have a target on his back. He already has a target on his back, kind of the sort of the, the intellectual Trump folks, kind of his, his policy people and the, the people who have been promoting a kind of Trumpism even prior to Trump have all always hated Paul Ryan. He represents everything. Who are those people you're talking the Republican about? Party. Well, say like Stephen Miller, who's oh. his policy director and was, was a communications guy for Jeff Sessions. Um, they just hate that style of Republicanism. And then on top of that, you had Ryan's conference call right after the Access Hollywood tape that was widely interpreted by you know a lot of the party and certainly by the Trump right as shiving uh, Donald Trump, even though Ryan didn't really say anything new, and that's why I think the call was was a mistake. You know, he he wasn't uh, out there defending Donald Trump every day anyway. He was already just focusing on the House, and he wasn't unendorsing Trump or saying he wasn't going to vote for him. So all it did was kind of inflame uh, that side of the party and inflame Donald Trump, who wasted about two weeks attacking. Paul Ryan. So he has a major target on his back. I don't know whether they'll get him uh, this time, um, but it will be like his life will be like John Boehner's going forward. It'll be a, a constant threat. So that and that raises another question to me, which, which is the day after you mentioned what, what we're going to know a week from now, it's going to be a lot more. But the day after who who represents the future for the Republican Party? Who do you expect to see in the leadership positions if Trump loses, which the polls would suggest is is, is likely not certain? You've got Paul Ryan, clearly a Speaker of the House, maybe in a in a wounded capacity, leading a smaller majority at best. Uh, who's going to be on that that stage for 2020 when those first primary debates roll around? Well, we'll see some of the same folks we saw this time around. Certainly, Ted Cruz. You know, at literally every hour of the day is is plotting how he he actually grasps the brass ring the next time around. We'll see some of these uh, young senators. Tom Cotton, I think, pretty clearly. Uh, from Arkansas is going to run, and Ben Sass from Nebraska is going to think about it. And those those two guys represent opposite poles of how you deal with Donald Trump. How much is the next campaign going to be going to be viewed for the prism of how you handle this one? Kasich, Cruz, Rubio, these are different strategies of of handling Trump. Right. So we we don't know. For instance, just focusing back on Cruz. It may be that Republican voters just never forgive him, and, and they say you, you helped blow up the convention at a time when the party needed you, you weren't there. Or it may be that if slowly over time, I would, I would think now since 
even if Trump loses, it's going to be narrow, that this would take a, a lot of time. But slowly the party realizes Trump was a mistake, and the people who were hesitant and critical about him were, were prescient and, and right had, and had the truer values. But I don't think anyone can know how that debate is, is going to play out. So Kasich, where do you, where do you see his role? Where does national, how does National Review uh, view Kasich's future in this debate? I just I, I, I think Kasich, you know, it will be this, in the same slot he was this time around. It's someone who, you know, in, in theory would have a lot of appeal in a general election, but ac- actually has to win Republican votes ever to get there. And he demonstrated no capacity to do that in 2016, and I don't see how it would be any different uh, in 2020. And I was and I'm just sort of constantly annoyed by John Kasich, and that's a pretty subjective uh, reaction and maybe speaks poorly of me. But the fact is, if he, if he were running today, he'd probably be winning by 10 points. Who annoys you more, by the way, John Kasich or Ted Cruz? <laughs> uh, they both can be pretty annoying. Maybe <laughs> since I tend to agree with Cruz more, I, I'll, I'll have to say Kasich. Wow. So, uh, so standing here right now, uh, what wh- what are you saying about this moment? Do you feel like you're hitting yourself a little bit for missing something big in this country? Uh, as you mentioned, every step of the way, and did did we all miss a very big story as we were trying to explain away the Trump phenomena, or is he just a one-off? Is it only about this person, this unique blend of personality and celebrity and money and uh, and everything else around him that that made this possible? I don't know the answer to that. It, clearly, some element of it was just his celebrity personality, you know. And maybe if you just subtract Donald Trump's persona and someone had run on these issues, you get Pat Buchanan, you know, who who has a quarter of, of the party but not necessarily a, a plurality or majority or enough to win a nomination. I, I don't know the answer to that. I do think that the right was, uh, had become just too beholden to these old, cliched uh, policies and rhetorical tropes associated with Ronald Reagan, who you know, I, I obviously adore and admire, but everyone thought there was this kind of sturdy house of Reagan, and everyone had an Occupy a room um, within it and sort of gen- genuflect at the door. And Donald Trump didn't do that. You know, he, he, he basically shook the structure and the whole thing fell down, which goes to the fact that conservatism had not updated itself to deal with new realities on the ground. And I will say some of my colleagues have been warning about this forever and, and trying to come up with, with policy alternatives, but no political figure really crystallized it the way that Donald Trump did. And for me, this is uh, another with personal tragedy related to the Trump phenomenon, you know, there's about 50% of it that I, I can get on board of Trumpism. But the problem is, you know, that one, there are the excesses of Trumpism, and two, there's Trump himself, who's just a desperately flawed candidate and man. Well, the silver lining here, Rich, is plenty of material post-November 8th for National Review. Right. I mean, truly, the, the most interesting story after this election is going to be what happens to the Republican Party, what happens to the conservative movement. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it will be a battle royale for survival. Thank you for joining us on Powerhouse Politics. Appreciate it. So, Rick, we've got a few more days left, and every single day we will be right here with Powerhouse Politics. We will indeed, and every day brings that new raft of polling and new questions to answer about the future because I think what, what we, can, we can say, and the conversation with Rich plays it out, whatever happens on November 8th, 
doesn't end the argument. It doesn't end the discussion. This isn't one of those, like, this clears the decks and changes everything. We're still going to be here, this divided country, having conversations that are really, really important. That's all the time we have for today. So thank you for listening to this day's, this day's edition of Powerhouse Politics. Uh, please take a moment, of course, rate us and review us on iTunes uh, and follow us on Twitter. I'm at John Carl, at Rick Klein. Today's show was produced by the ever-talented, delightful, the people that make us, that make us what we are here, Rick, and only the good part, uh, Robin Gratison, Avery Miller, David Rhine. We'll be back here tomorrow for another Daily Powerhouse Politics. Rick Klein, I'm Jonathan Carl. Thank you for listening.